Welcome to University Hill, located on the campus of the University of British Columbia in beautiful Vancouver. Each week, we gather on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Musqueam people. We worship, sing, pray, and engage with scripture as we seek to grow in faith and as followers of Jesus. We pray that this podcast of scripture passages and sermons preached will bless your own faith journey. And of course, you're always welcome to join us on Sunday morning. Check out uhill.net for a Zoom link and more information. Reading from the book of Acts, chapter 2, verses 1 to 21. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly from heaven there came a sound like a rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues, as of fire, appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages, as the Spirit gave them ability. Now there were devout Jews from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem. And at this sound, the crowd gathered and was bewildered, because each one heard them speaking in the native language of each. Amazed and astonished, they asked, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear, each of us, our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Ammonites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. In our own languages, we hear them speaking about God's deeds of power. All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others sneered and said, they're filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and listen to what I say. Indeed, these are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only nine o'clock in the morning. No, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. In the last days it will be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And your sons and daughters will prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even upon my slaves, both men and women, in these days I will pour out my spirit, and they will prophesy. And I will show portents in heaven above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and smoky mist. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the coming of the Lord's great and glorious day. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is the word of the Lord. Online, you may have to uh, warn me. I've just realized that I'm down to one bar of battery, (laughs) which may be by the Holy Spirit's design. I don't know. Um, But I I wrote this sermon this morning, uh, and I, I realized this morning that I wrote this sermon kind of assuming that everybody would know 
what Pentecost is, and, and that may be true, but I thought we, it was probably worth reorienting ourselves just in case. My experience in the church is if you have a question, someone else probably has the same question too. So, uh, Pentecost is a feast day that comes 50 days after Easter. Um, it, it's uh, the day where we celebrate the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the church, and in the Christian calendar, it kind of it's the bridge between the life of Jesus in the first half of the year and the life of the church in the second half of the year. And um, we sometimes talk about Pentecost as when the church was born, as the birthday of the church. And I, but I, I've come to, I prefer to talk about it as the day that the church learned how to speak. <laughs> you know, see, I think the church started at Easter and after Jesus' resurrection, Jesus spends 40 days with the disciples, teaching them and uh, reorienting them to live in this post-resurrection world. And then he's ascended into heaven, and he tells them to wait in Jerusalem until they are clothed with power from on high. And uh, that's the power that will launch them into the world to be uh, his disciples um, and his witnesses. And today, today is the day that this happens. Um, and one more thing, just, just sort of a contextual thing that's kind of helpful to know. The reason we have all these people from all these places in Jerusalem is that it's uh, the Festival of Weeks, uh, one of the three festivals where Jews would make their way to Jerusalem um, on pilgrimage to offer sacrifices at the temple and generally celebrate God's goodness and uh, glory. And so there's, there's lots more we could say about Pentecost, but uh, uh, that's a little bit of a reorientation, and so let's, uh, let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks and praise for the gift of this day for the wonder of your spirit, and we pray now uh, that your spirit would come upon us in a fresh way. We pray that you would open our hearts to hear your voice, and if we do hear your voice, we pray that you would uh, make our hearts soft to receive it. Now, whatever I say, may it be faithful to your word, and if it's not faithful, let it pass away. But we do pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts and minds would be acceptable in your sight. We ask it in the name of Jesus, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So Pentecost is, I think, a weird and, and kind of wonderful day. Uh, it, it is weird. I mean, even to start to think about it, we have to talk about you know, resurrection and ascension, which are strange enough. But Pentecost on its own is, is plenty weird. Uh, right? For those of us who grew up in more... I don't know, reserved traditions like the United Church of Canada. Uh, the idea of people suddenly speaking in languages that they may never even have heard before might be a bit of a stretch. Uh, there's plenty of evidence in the wide expression of, of Christianity that the story we have in Acts 2 is not an isolated incident. Uh, it's an experience that others have had throughout history. And uh, I'm kind of intrigued, but I'm also happy to leave it to the wacky church up the street, if you know what I mean. <laughs> You know, we do like to talk about the Spirit, uh, but I have to admit that when we do it, it sometimes sounds like we're trying to keep God particularly vague, kind of ethereal, you know, and sometimes slightly, just a slightly more interesting version of our best intentions. I mean, it seems to me amazing how often, it's uncanny really, how often the movement of the Spirit looks an awful lot like what we want to do. <laughs> it doesn't look so often like a gale force wind that blows the doors off our comfortable places and launches us into the world, proclaiming God's glory in ways we couldn't have expected and can't seem to control. And to be fair to us, which I'm inclined to do, 
Uh, St. Paul would tell us that while the wilder gifts of the Spirit are important for the church, the, the primary and most excellent gift of the Spirit at work in us and through us, the primary evidence is a deepening love for God and for the things that God loves. Right? He'd tell us that the, the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and generosity and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. The real measure of our life in the Spirit is these things rooting and blooming in us. The primary work of the Spirit is to make us more like Jesus. If we never experience xenolalia, which is the fancy word for what we see in this story today, the ability to speak other human languages, um, or glossolalia, which is what you might think of when, when you think of speaking in tongues. Uh, it's a language that ends where our language, or begins where our language kind of ends. And I know, I know people, very reasonable, rational people, who've experienced both of these things. But if we never experience them, it's okay, because the real evidence is that we're wanting to be more like Jesus. And if we want to be more like Jesus, if our desire to be more, more, more like Jesus, then we can be sure that the Holy Spirit's at work in us. Now that said, I, I don't want to shy away too much from the weirdness of this story. <laughs> uh, you know, because frankly, the weirdness, I think, is part of the wonder. This is a story that signals the beginning of the church's ministry, and it reminds us that we've got some of that spirit wildness baked into our DNA. This may be an unfamiliar expression, but I think it's part of our story too. It tells us something about what it means to be the church, what we're supposed to be about as the church, as people called to live in the way of Jesus in our time and place. And for today, I'm seeing four things in this story. I'm sure you'll see others, but we're going to stick with four for now. The four things are the church or the Christian life is God-initiated, it's relational, it's imaginative, and it's invitational. The Christian life is God-initiated, relational, imaginative, and invitational. And so first, this is God-initiated. One of my favorite parts in all the Gospels is when Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, you didn't choose me, I chose you. <laughs> you know, I'm convinced that we are here this morning, not because we're especially good people, that doesn't seem to have much to do with it, and not because you woke up this morning and thought that it would be a really good idea to come and do this thing that most of your neighbors think is really weird and a waste of a perfectly good sunny Sunday morning, but I'm convinced that we are here because the Holy Spirit's at work in us. You know, we'll pray for those who aren't here. No, I'm just kidding. I think, I think it, this is, the Holy Spirit is the only reason for the church at all. You know, when, when Luke, the author of Acts, tells this pivotal story, this moment that changes everything, he makes it pretty clear that the disciples don't have much to do with it. They weren't strategizing about how to evangelize the nations or creating a new social movement rooted in the radical love of Jesus. You know, on just about every page of the book of Acts after this, <laughs> that's what's happening. People are always praying and preaching and singing and performing miracles and proclaiming the glory of God, but not apparently today. On this day, Luke says that they just happened to be together. They were doing what Jesus said to do. They were waiting for something. It's not unreasonable to think that, that they, they might have done some praying. They tended to do that when they got together, but it doesn't say that. Right? It says that they were just together. And they were consumed by this experience of God. They're utterly passive 
They are not co-creating the conditions for spiritual awakening. The wind filled the house suddenly. The fire rested on them. They were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke in languages as the Spirit gave them ability. I think this is really, really important. The church isn't meant to be an organization where we live out our best efforts to be good people in the world. And that wouldn't necessarily be a bad thing. We could do worse than that. But I think it's less than we're made for. Because the church is meant to be a place where the Holy Spirit can have her way. The people caught up in not in our highest ideals, but in the power of God, untamable as the wind. It's hard, though, to write polity around that. And hard to budget for it. It's not the sort of thing that conforms to a strategic plan or a mission statement. At the end of the day, we like our control. We like our lives and our churches with a bit of a spiritual flourish now and again, but not consumed by heavenly fire. That sounds like an insurance nightmare. A lot of paperwork. But what if, and and stick with me here, what if our primary plan, whenever we show up together, is just to let God have God's way without reservation? And what if we trusted that what Paul says in 1 Corinthians is true, that we in these bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, that in Jesus' name we are not our own, not masters of our own destiny, but made to participate in God's glory, in God's healing and restoring and whole-making work, come what may. What if we really allowed that this thing we're called into wasn't our idea, but it's God's? Because it is. It's often been said that the church is not the church of God that has a mission, but the God of mission who has a church. Right? The disciples just showed up. <laughs> it's God who launches them into the world in beautifully bewildering ways. And I love that Luke describes the crowd as bewildered because it means there's something going on here that can't be explained by objective analysis of the situation. That's the kind of church we're made for. Come, Holy Spirit. The church is God-initiated, and because of that, the church is essentially, down to its core, relational. Right? Ours is God in relation. God, Father, Son, and Spirit, Creator, Redeemer, Sustainer, eternally communal, mutually self-giving, relentlessly loving, which means that God's community is going to mirror that. I think this is another reason why we might want to avoid the Holy Spirit. <laughs> you know, we are good post enlightenment modernists, which means we are trained to want formation by information. Right? If we can just get the right ideas, the right concepts, then we'll live properly. If we know better, then we'll do better. And the only problem with that is it is objectively not true. Life always outpaces our best intentions. Study after study shows that we are not nearly as rational and reasonable as we like to believe we are. And I think that's because we're not meant to be. We're not computers restricted to algorithms. We are not AI. (laughs) AI can only do what we tell it to do. We are alive and made for abundant life, which is always life in relation. We're not made for formation formation through information. We're made for formation in relationship. The Pentecost scene is kind of chaotic, but I think it's also profoundly intimate. The Spirit fills the disciples. Fire rests on them. The wind blows around them. The Holy Spirit is, first of all, the intimacy of God for us. 
When Jesus promises the Spirit, it's part of the promise that we will not be left alone. This is how he will be with us, now and forever, everywhere and always, closer than our next breath. And it's that personal relationship that shapes how we're meant to be in the world. The Spirit takes us with absolute seriousness and then compels us to do the same for others. I think it's really important that the disciples are able to speak in the languages of the people around them. Presumably, most of the crowd would have had some Hebrew and maybe some passable Aramaic. Uh, Almost certainly, they could have defaulted to Greek, which everybody knew a bit of. And, you know, it's amazing what we can do with a few words and some hand gestures, right? We can get the point across. But this is about more than getting the point across. Right? The Spirit... Uh, In the spirit, the disciples are empowered to take the crowds with profound seriousness, speaking in their own native languages. The theologian Willie James Jennings points out that language is is more than mere word choice. It's always bound up in culture. This initiating moment is going to cause all sorts of problems for the community that is the church. Because it invites radical differences. Now we've got Parthians and Phrygians, for heaven's sake. By communicating the the gospel in every language that Luke can name, (laughs) I'm sure that's what's happening here, he just ran out of a name, the the Spirit is making clear that the church will not be a monoculture. It can only truly be the church when it learns to speak God's deeds of power in ways that both embrace and transcend every culture, every people. Most of the rest of the book of Acts It's going to be about the church trying to figure out how to do that. And it's tough, you know? Because the first disciples were as surprised as we are that Jesus doesn't call people to be like us. He calls them to be like him. Usually, when we talk about wanting the church to grow, what we actually mean is we want people to come and help us do the things we like to do, right? That's what I mean. (laughs) I'm honest. But the body of Christ needs all its parts. And we need to take... Seriously, the world around us, building relationships across difference, learning to speak the glory of God in ways that people can understand. You know, the church is often accused, or sometimes accused anyways, of answering 200-year-old questions with 500-year-old answers, (laughs) which is to say that we don't always take very seriously the language of the culture around us, right? Which is about more than words. As if the church outside, or what's going on outside the church doors is sort of irrelevant to what we do on a Sunday morning. But Pentecost makes clear that the world outside is more important than we could possibly imagine. This is the first hint that the church will be the only community in the world who's, uh, that exists primarily for its non-members. We are to be people empowered by the Spirit to stretch relational possibilities to their limits Beyond anything we can easily imagine, it should look like a blessed miracle. Holy Spirit, come. The church is God-initiated, profoundly relational, inside and out. And the church is a community of spiritual imagination. Imagination is not make-believe or daydream, right? Imagination is that gift that allows us, as Shakespeare said, to apprehend more than cool reason can ever comprehend. It allows us to see possibilities where there aren't any. (laughs) As 20th century martyr Bishop Oscar Romero says, the Christian life is one 
that knows that beyond the night, the dawn already glows. Isn't that good? Beyond the night, the dawn already glows. When the Spirit is present, dreams and visions can flourish. Over and over again, the Bible asks us to imagine a, a, a world that seems impossible. Deserts blooming, parched riverbeds coursing, unexpected paths in the wilderness, dry bones dancing, every belly filled, every tear wiped away, and abundant life from a tomb. When God's Spirit is poured out, our imaginations are let loose. They can run wild. The possibilities are endless. And I don't know about you, but I need that. <laughs> because naturally, I am uh, risk-averse and cynical. My heart is eager for a Pentecostal moment, for God's new and extravagant thing in this time and place, but my inclination is to keep things steady and hope for the best. You know, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. <laughs> as Paul would put it. And yet I'm deeply hopeful. You know, the first church wasn't much to look at. On paper, this should have been a street party that kind of petered out as people got tired and went back to reality. And instead, it changed the world. We're here because of it. They began to live out of a holy imagination for how things really are. They began to embody a whole new world in the shell of the old that captured the imagination of folks wherever they went. They got accused of turning the world upside down in beautiful ways. And the only people who were really afraid were the people who were really benefiting from the world as it is. And that's what we're called to do too. The Spirit of God, the same Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, is willing to do more in us and through us than we can ask or imagine. And really all we have to do is show up and be open. So I wonder what your spiritual imagination is for this church. Right? God will do more. What's your spiritual imagination for this church? What's your blue sky adventure that you think God might be calling us to? And then will we answer the call? Or do we prefer our control and being safe inside our house? Holy Spirit, come. The church is God-initiated, profoundly relational, endlessly imaginative, and expansively inviting. But the whole point of Pentecost is invitation. It's not just for the church as it is, but for the church as it isn't yet. Right? The disciples aren't filled with the Holy Spirit so they can have a good personal experience. Those are good. They're important. They're necessary. We can't give what we don't got. But that is exactly the point. Whatever we're given, we've got to give back out. Right? We are blessed to be a blessing, the Bible says, over and over again. The Holy Spirit is not interested in being kept to ourselves. Instead, the Spirit is eager to shape abundant life in us so that we can invite others into the hope and peace and joy and love of the Christ that we are in and is in us. I think one of the things that holds most of us back from anything like evangelism, and by that I mean the best possible sharing of good news, I think the thing that holds many people back is fear that we don't know what to say, right? Uh, there may be other reasons, some of them probably good ones, but I think that tends to be high on people's lists. It certainly is on mine. I get paid to be here. Now, I don't want to sound foolish or be misunderstood. But I think that's rooted in that pesky desire, that addiction to formation by information. Because the Spirit invites us into relationship and enables us to speak in ways that can be understood. 
You know, the point is not to know exactly what to say in order to share our faith. And I am a firm believer that I don't know is a perfectly legitimate theological answer. The point is to cultivate an openness, an expectation that the Spirit has something to say to everyone we meet and is willing to say it through us. And what's more, there's a pretty good chance that it won't sound like one of those rigid tracks that, you know, gives us the creeps. But it'll be an invitation to experience the power of God in their lives in unexpected ways because that's what God wants. It's what God wants for us. It's what God wants for others. You know, one of my own prayers these days is to grow in openness to say what the Spirit wants to say. That the Spirit's filling would actually overflow. You know, that, that sharing the gospel would come with a kind of new ease and naturalness. I don't want to be weird about it, but I just want, to, I want to, if this is true, why can't we talk about it, right? The Spirit who enables us to speak in ways that others will understand. And not just understand, but want in. We're not called to invite people to an intellectual exercise or philosophical framework. We're called to invite people into the abundant life for which they are made. And so I wonder if you'd join me in that prayer. I think the summer, like June through August, would be a great time to be praying this prayer. Right? First, to experience the Holy Spirit's filling. This will take you five minutes a day. Tops. Experience the Holy Spirit's filling. And it will take some time. You might have to make some space to be filled. The scriptures promise us that if we ask for the Holy Spirit, God, who loves to give good gifts to his children, will give in abundance. So pray for the Holy Spirit's filling, and then pray to let the Spirit overflow. Right? Maybe there's one person that you want to pray for to invite in and trust the Holy Spirit to give you words to speak so that they can understand. Or maybe you want to join me in the prayer that would just be open to letting, to bearing witness to the hope that is ours wherever we are. Like, what language do you need in order to speak the power and presence of God in the office or in the classroom, with friends and neighbors, with, with family and whoever else is occupying your days? How might you invite them into the hope that is ours? Because I really do believe the Spirit is ready and willing and able blow the doors off this thing, if that's what we're here for. Holy Spirit, come. Amen.